Okay, week 8 of 11. And we're finally getting to Jesus. There was a tweet this week by a guy named Brian Zond. Some of you have heard of him, but probably not many. He's a little bit of a provocative guy. And he said something about the Bible that has stirred up a lot of attention, as things tend to do on Twitter. He wrote, the Bible is a 1,200-page book where the main character doesn't show up until page 929. (laughs) And I thought about that. He's been accused of a lot of things, heresy among them. But I want to think about that tonight. Because we've talked through this course, this main idea that I've tried to put forth, that the Bible, this book, which uh, his is only 1,200 pages, mine's 1,559, but I have notes at the bottom of the pages. Yours might be even longer or shorter, whether you've got the large print or the tiny print. I don't care for tiny print Bibles, though. Because if I'm called on to read it, I want to actually be able to read it. But when you look at the Bible, we said this Bible, this book, is about God. It's about God who is nature's to be in relationship. Why is God's nature to be in relationship? It's in a trick question. Who is God? Creator. Who? Who? Father, keep coming. Give me more. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, George is right on with us. See, that's the Christian name for God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that tell us? That tells us there is one God, but exists in three persons. It tells us, very critically, God never exists alone. That's something worth writing down. God never exists alone. God exists forever in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so does God then, in the overflow of that relationship, uh, creates? So many of you are onto that. And God creates out of relationship and creates us to be in relationship. Why does God create us to be in relationship? We're in relationship because we're in the image of God. The Sunday night, we talked with our fifth graders about the image of God, and they wondered, how long are God's legs? And I said, well, just because you're in the image of God doesn't mean that God has to look like us. I think then I accidentally taught them pantheism, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Jill's pretty sure I did. Uh, she's smarter on that sort of thing. But that, you know, God is spirit. God doesn't have a necessarily a body, although most of us, when we envision God, God does look like us. But God exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God created us to be in relationship, to be in his image, to be in relationship. That is part of what it means to be in relationship. But what we found was when we were in relationship, and the key part of God's created relationship is trust and obedience, what did our earliest human ancestors do? Did they trust? No. Did they obey? No. No. Bad news. So they fell out of relationship with God, right? So far we're three chapters in. I know I'm repeating myself, but I hear repetition is key to reinforcement. And so human, human beings have sinned, and so what does God do? Does God leave us alone? No. Great. And instead is on the move, restoring and reconciling. Ordinary people organized in community to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. So everything we've done, and we've talked about that, is we, we talked about how God formed a, formed a people called Israel, gathered a people, called a people, formed them together, delivered them from slavery, provided a place for them to live, provided leaders for them, uh, provided a law for them, provided direction for them, provided his will for them. He, he did all that, right? The people disobeyed and they were carried into exile, but God brought them back. God is forming a people. And last week and the week before, as we talked about the prophets, we talked about the return, we kept seeing that we, we keep seeing the Bible story keeps pointing, right? We talked about how the Bible story, the prophets, they keep pointing to one who will come. 
Isaiah said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Also said, For unto us a son, a child is born, for unto us a son is given. He's pointing. Ezekiel looks forward to the day uh, when, uh, when, when the valley of the dry bones will be brought to life. Looks forward to a day when we, the heart of stone will be exchanged for a heart of flesh. And then in the time of return, when return men, they came back, but it didn't mean all the problems were there. They still had problems. They kept looking forward to a day. When will God act? When will God act decisively to redeem the world? And we don't have to wait any longer. Because tonight we're going to talk about how God redeems the world. How does he do it? What does it say? What are the last three words? In bold say, how does God redeem the world? In Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So we're pointing. So, so we say, yeah. So, so Brian Zahn says, you know, it's page 929 before the protagonist is introduced. But what we see, one, is we see that Jesus is present the whole way. Uh, what you don't even know what are the first words of the Gospel of John? If you read that, you said what in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God when in the beginning, in the beginning, and then we go back to Genesis, right? Genesis chapter one, um, where it talks about. The, the, the wind from God or the Spirit of God hovering over. And then uh, God says, and then God speaks. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, God says, Let us make humankind in our image. Now, some scholars say, well, you know, it's the royal we. But we don't see a whole lot of God using that. Maybe it's the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the very beginning. So Jesus is in some ways present through all this. We hear stories, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace and a fourth person shows up. It seems to look, he says, like a son of man. Well, gee whiz, who is Jesus? Son of man, yeah. Uh, the, 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 you know, uh, and then... Uh, in Daniel later, says, you know, the Ancient of Days comes, and then one who looked like a son of man arose. Daniel also saying, you know, there will be these great four kingdoms, and then during the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron, a stone will come up, the stone will come up from the earth, dash its feet and tear it down, and its kingdom will rise instead. And Jesus is called the build the cornerstone that the builder the stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I'm starting to preach now, but you get the point. <laughs> everything we're talking about, everything we've talked about is pointing both in our human hopes and desires, those desires that we share with them. Um, on Sunday, if you if you came to early service, I don't know how many of you were at early service. I know the Overings were and and, and the, the Devericks and, and Jenny uh, were there. We sang a new song uh, called Is He Worthy? It's a little hard to sing, but it's really meaningful, isn't it? It says, uh, do, do, you, uh, do you feel the world is broken? And, and we say, we do. Uh, you know, do you wish that it could all be made brand new? We sing, we do. And, and that just expresses the hope that we see in the Bible uh, that is in the Old Testament and that comes to a head uh, in the story of Jesus. So we come to Jesus, we come to see Jesus, and uh, we, we kind of wish there was one story about Jesus. But instead, what do we get? Do we get one story? It's not a trick question. Do we? How many, how many, how many do we get? Joe's back there, four. We get four of them. I had you kind of read, rather than read down, one, two, three, four, kind of had you read across the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same vision in Greek, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, uh, and, and the, but they're all different. Uh, did you notice sometimes you, you read uh, one and then the other, the same story, but there were different details? Yeah. Uh, for example, I just read today, I don't know how I noticed this today, one, uh, Matthew and Luke both give us genealogies of Jesus down to Joseph, which is sort of unhelpful when you really think about it. Uh, 
I, I thought that was kind of funny. But anyway, uh, why? Okay, we're going to do a little basic biblical story. Why would a genealogy of Jesus through Joseph be kind of like pointless? Because Joseph's not the father. I've already given away the secret for those of you who are wondering. Um, yeah, I know, right? I, I'm clearly putting the, the the cart has rolled down the hill, and I'm sitting up on the horse. Um, but they're different. <laughs> they're not the same. Um, uh, they come back together at David, but after David, they diverge. Um, but they're four different stories, and that's always been. And then John kind of sits out on its own with its own emphases, and Jesus is a little different there. And um, and so in the earth from the very beginning. Almost immediately after these four come around, the early church thinks, you know what would be easier? is if we just had one story. After all, most of the Bible is one story. How many stories of Moses are there? One, right? Exodus. Numbers. One. Um, They don't try to tell the same thing. The only time we diverge from that is, if you remember, when we read Kings and Chronicles, and the stories of the king, you kind of read them together, we kind of read them together, and... Sometimes it was the same, and sometimes they had kind of different takes on them. Um, but here we see four, there's no example elsewhere in the Bible where you have four different stories about a person. Uh, I think the most we get to is three, because uh, Jeremiah um, tells stories at Kings and Chronicles of the same people. Um, so we have four different stories, and they said, well, we'll just make one story. And the church said, no, this is wrong. We cannot do this. We, we shall not do this, um, because Jesus... This is my thought. Jesus is so big, we can't capture him with one story. See, if, if you and I, um, you and I, maybe all of us in here, told, told our story of Jesus and the impact Jesus made in our lives, would any two stories be identical? No. I think that has a lot to do with it. <laughs> The, the, the very nature of how Jesus comes to us, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but the very nature of how Jesus comes to us, it is slightly uh, different. So there's a lot of ways to think about this. I gave you a, uh, a chart on the inside to talk about this, what, what scholars call the synoptic problem. Um, it's only a problem if you're interested in solving it, I guess. Um, but that's what they call it. And I don't, we're not going to get too deep into this. But if you've ever wondered, you know, why some of these, there are different ways. Uh, this really tells you right there that nobody knows how we have different ones. But that it appears that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. And that Matthew and Luke are more similar to each other. In fact, uh, and, and they're all kind of similar to Mark. I, I had to look this up. I didn't count this myself because Why? Uh, someone else will do it. Um, it appears that in uh, Mark, that 80% of Mark's verses are also in Matthew, and 65% of Mark is in Luke. Mm-hmm. But if you read Mark and then you read Matthew next to each other, you'll also notice that in Matthew, there's a big difference. What's the difference between Mark and Matthew? It starts in a different place. As the cartoon on the front points out, it actually starts with something. Uh, Mark jumps right in, but, but also uh, there's no teaching in Mark. There's no Sermon on the Mount. It's just the stories of Jesus, of his life, things he did. So that, and so some scholars have said there must be some document that exists, and they just call it Q. Does anyone ever found Q? No. Does anyone certain that Q ever actually existed? No. Um, but but uh, Q, in fact, is from the French word for Kel. It was the French word Kel, and it just means what? So there we go. So it's possible. So the idea. So some some have said, you know, Mark came first, and then Matthew uh, had a copy of Mark on his desk when he wrote it, and and he, and he also had a copy of this thing. We don't know if it actually existed. It's called Q, and he's sitting there and he's looking at both of them and writing them down. And Luke did the same thing, Mark and Q. Uh, and then some have suggested that maybe um, that maybe Luke had Matthew too. <laughs> And writing it all down. Um, some have suggested that, uh, you know, it's just three visions of the same thing. But there is enough similarity. I think it would be unfair to say that it's not possible that they borrowed materials from each other. Because there's such close uh, connection. There may have been other things. But my point is simply to say that there is a connectedness between the three Gospels 
uh, that is, uh, that's very interesting and worth, uh, worth thinking about. All four of them come from a genre simply called gospel. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means a good announcement. Or we might call it good news. Mark starts right there. What's the beginning of Mark says? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good news. And so they're telling us this, uh, this good news. One of the things that's really interesting, I think, personally, is uh, that we, and, and almost, almost, did the Gospels last. Because the Gospels are actually, with a couple exceptions, the later books of the Bible to be written. The, most of the, uh, Mark was probably the first one. Uh, I think it was written around 70 A.D., if you're paying attention at home, that's about 40 years after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. Uh, Paul has been dead for over a decade. All the Paul's letters have already been written and are well in circulation. Uh, Luke and, and Matthew are probably written in the 80s. John is probably written in the 80s, but maybe the 90s, even up to 110. Some have suggested there's some second century in there that it represents a real, a, a more Gentile church. I'm no scholar, uh, but simply to say that, that uh, the Gospels are written later than Paul, which is strange. Um, it's strange to think about. Now, I think some of this, I'm going to say there's a lot of this. I think some of this is by the 70s, 40 years later, what's po what could possibly be happening in the 70s? Roman destroyed of Jerusalem. Romans destroyed Jerusalem, which I think is really important to the Gospel of Mark. I think that's, I think that's why, a lot, why I tend to agree with around that dating in the 70s, uh, because the destruction of the temple is this cataclysmic event uh, and, the, and the absolute crushing of, of, of most of the, of the Jewish resistance. Um, but just think about this. Most of the disciples were, and the earliest Christians, let's say a lot of them were, let's say they were five years younger than Jesus. I don't know, just going to guess. Some were probably bad, some were younger, some were older. Jesus was probably born in 4 BC, roughly. So 3, 4, he didn't, there, we can't find the birth certificate. Um, Jesus' death and resurrection then happened sometime probably around 30 AD. At this point, many of his disciples, let's say, are about 30, 25, 30, 35. Well, what's going to happen, then the church is formed till more than 30, what's going to happen about the time of 70? What's happening with that early generate, that first generation? What's happening? They're 70. They're 70. And they didn't have the medical care that many of us have. So what, what, what might, I'm just, this is just the Sean Ryan hypothesis. What's probably happening in the 70s? They're dying off. How many of you have ever had relatives who tell great stories and you, you'd say, well, we've got to get mom or grandma's stories written down? You know, we've got to get them written down. Now, some, some, are, some of you are on the other side of that. and They're, they're wondering, write your story down, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, right? So I think a, my personal thought is these are stories based on firsthand eyewitnesses that I think at this point in these range, they want to get these stories preserved. Uh, Luke tells us at the beginning of Luke. What, what, is, what is Luke telling? Do you remember the, the beginning of Luke? Luke, uh, Luke writes to Theophilus, which is almost certainly a pseudonym. Uh, I say that because Theophilus comes from two Greek words, meaning lover of God. Probably a, probably a pseudonym. And, and he writes, since many have undertake to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning those things about which you have been instructed." I suspect what happens here is these stories, we say, well, you know, some people say, well, how can you write a story? Um, <laughs> how can you write a story for something that happened uh, 40 years ago? And what you're finding is these are stories that were probably in oral circulation. 
for many years. And then this is a desire to, in an orderly way, to collect them in these stories. I think all four Gospels also have a different purpose. Uh, we see, and if you look on the front of your uh, front, uh, this is a friend of mine sent me this, and I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to use it. I don't know where it came from. Um, and the four Gospels each have kind of a different function, a different nature. Um, we see with uh, um, you know, Matthew... Uh, Matthew is probably writing to a more Jewish church, but that is, that's often what's said is that Matthew is the Jewish gospel. I think it's probably unlikely he wrote to an entirely Jewish community. He writes also uh, to uh, probably a mixed community. Many One scholar who very prominently has put forward this idea that Matthew is a handbook to a church of both Jews and Gentiles that are undergoing persecution. That's why there's so much about the ethics of the kingdom, and we'll talk a little bit about that, in, in, that is emphasized in Matthew, that, that in, in encouraging them to hold on to their practices that are thought to be strange, hold on uh, in the midst of persecution, as, as Alan brought up that in that first era of persecution under Nero, when Nero burned half the city down and blamed the Christians. Um... Uh, um, um, um so Matthew writes that uh, later. Actually, Matthew would be during probably the second era of persecution in the, in the later part of the first century, not during the Nero one. I'm sorry, I want to back up on that. Uh, probably in Antioch. Uh, it's funny, Antioch um, is a place where the early church takes root. Antioch is part of the Jewish diaspora. We talked about that last week. You remember, we, we said it was not true. They didn't all go to Babylon and all come back. Many stayed in Babylon. Many moved to other parts in that, that ancient Near East. Uh, and we know that because Paul, we'll talk about that, you know, when Paul went on a missionary journey to preach somewhere, where did he preach? Where did he do when he got to a new community? Anyone know? You don't have to, what? He'd go up to the local synagogue and start preaching there. And like even if he went all the way to Turkey, hundreds of miles away, there'd be a synagogue there. You know, although he gets somewhere uh, where there may not have been enough, like where he meets Lydia. There are not enough men, but Lydia is there by the river praying. Um, and and uh, so so there is a Jewish community there, uh, and that's usually where it starts, but it doesn't it doesn't end there. Uh, so when we think about uh, Matthew, Matthew is really intent about connecting connecting Jesus to the story of the Old Testament, that he is fulfillment, that there is some sense of connection to the past. It's interesting, uh, you know, I, I think I once did a sermon, I think here it was here, uh, for Matthew chapter 1, we look at that. Do you look at, look at Matthew chapter 1 for a minute? Look at those names. How many of those names do you recognize? It, it, they're people like, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. Do you remember those? Those were the kings, right? So that line we talked about. So hey, this is so good. Well, what do we know about the kings? Weren't the best people. Some were. Josiah was good. Jehoshaphat was pretty good. David was good. Solomon started out good, then kind of petered out. Um, but but a lot of those people are bad. You know, they're the son-in-law of Ahab and. Uh, they, you know, they throw Jeremiah into a cistern. And those people, if you knew that story, and then remember Jeconiah, Salathiel, Salathiel, the follower, father of Zerubbabel. If you remember last week, Zerubbabel leading the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the wall. Uh, and, and over and over we see that that story, he's very clear from the beginning, that story connects with this story of Jesus. Jesus is not something new. Jesus is not the end of something, of some discontinuous thing. Jesus continues the story we've already been telling. Uh, Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's gospel talks to us, and Luke in some way 
Uh, his, uh, he is a uh, probably not Palestinian, not from that region of Israel. Uh, he may have converted to Judaism first, but it appears that when he quotes the, the Old Testament, he does so from a Greek translation, not a Hebrew one, which means he probably didn't know Hebrew. Um, we don't, you know, these are, these are speculation. Uh, he, may have quoted, he may have also quoted a Greek translation because that's how the people he was writing to read the Bible, you know. If I were to sit there and, you know, quote you the Bible in, in Spanish, there might be a couple of you who could understand it, but it really wouldn't be the point. Uh, you know, or I, you know, whatever that I would translate. No, I may just use the Bible you use. Um, so that you know, we don't get too tied up in that. Uh, but in Luke, what we see is that early part of Luke also sets the stage, showing us some of those Old Testament characters, uh, particularly around John the Baptist uh, and his parents, Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Uh, Zechariah is in the temple of God. Uh, offering incense is his, you know, they drew the, his name out of a hat and it was his time to be there. I always love telling people Zechariah got surprised that when he went to church, God showed up. <laughs> we laugh at that, but we do the same thing. You know, we're in church and all of a sudden God is there and God's like, oh, wait, I thought that was why you came. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, and, and there we see, you know, that the continuation of those Old Testament duties. But then it introduces, it creates a bridge. Um, we see Simeon. Uh, Simeon's there, and he, he has been told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to get to see the Messiah. And when he does, he announces it to the parents, which is strange. It says there that the parents, Joseph and Mary, are, are surprised, which is weird because it's like they forgot that the angel came and told them. Don't really understand that. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're like, I didn't know you knew the secret, too. Um, but what we see is a lot of those Old Testament characters connecting to the New Testament, to this, to the story of Jesus. Uh, that there's again this continuity. Uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the late, the last and greatest prophet. He is a second Elijah. Elijah being the great prophet of the Old Testament. He he comes and he what does he do? He prepares the way. Once again, uh, the continuity uh, from Old Testament. Uh, to to New Testament, John, on the other hand, John is John's probably my favorite gospel. John's gospel is all about telling you that Jesus comes from God. That's why John chapter one; these beginnings really set the stage in all all four gospels. John chapter one is that great word that you know that that uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. I think the key verse of John, I know you're turning pages and it's just, you're just like, oh my goodness, it's like a, it's like a wild tornado. And it is. Uh, it's John chapter 20. You don't have to turn to that. Chapter 20, verse 30, 30 and 31. It may, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it may be worth highlighting. Um, he, he, he it's, it's thinking that might, it may well be the end, but then there's more after John's like there's an epilogue in John chapter 21. Uh, John reminds us, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. That's the key to the gospel of John. And, and, uh, uh, and that's, John is different. One of the main reasons John is different, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, is that for John, uh, virtue and, and vice or, or holiness and sinfulness or whatever language you want to use is tied up in believing. It's not necessarily tied up in ethics or behavior, but in believing. Um, and so John is all about that you would come to believe and that by believing that you may be saved. After all, what's the most famous verse in the Gospel of John? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever... Oh, there we go. That sounded great. Right? Whoever believes in him. Uh, that's the emphasis of the Gospel of John. And then the Gospel of Mark says, let's just get started here. 
But Mark has an emphasis as well. Mark's emphasis centers and circles uh, around this idea of the cross. Around the idea of the cross. Once again, he does connect to Old Testament. Uh, certainly in John Mark 1, 2, it says, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. There's again this sense of continuity. This is not some new story. Uh, reminding us that it's not like we built this big thing up and then all... Yeah. Let me give you an example. How many of you have... Do any of you enjoy watching like crime procedural shows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like Criminal Minds? Yeah. Um, some of you are like, no, but... Yeah. So like, what's what do you enjoy about them? One, it, it, they're interesting, but they're, they're like a mystery, right? How many times are you frustrated when it comes to an end and the person who did it is someone you, that you really didn't even meet? Like, don't you feel cheated? Yes, Shirley's with me. We're, we're, on, we're on with this. Uh, you know, like part of it's the mystery, knowing who did it. I am terrible at those. My wife is really good at them. Like, I'll watch it and I didn't understand. My wife will, I'll say, let's watch this. And we'll watch it again in 10 minutes. And my wife will be like, oh, he did it. How do you know this? He was rich. <laughs> and a Christian. And an how, how did you, how do you know this, right? Uh, um, um, what, so what was I saying? Did that have anything to do with it? Yes, it, it did. Um, what that had to do with was, uh, was, was simply uh, to say, to, uh, to tell us that this is not some new character that's been introduced in the last bit. That you haven't been, you know, it's not like you've been watching the show for 1,200 pages, and then all of a sudden, the person who's going to solve it comes in, and you don't know who it is. He's reminding us we've already introduced this character to you. Now, you might be like Sean and too dense to notice. That's your fault, not theirs. Um, but simply to say that this person, this Jesus, is someone who has been promised and predicted from the foundation of the earth. And that's common to all four Gospels. But in Mark, it's interesting. Mark points everything to the cross. Uh, it's interesting. In chapter 1 of Mark, verse 23 and 24, 25. This is like right in the beginning. The first disciples have been called. They come to Capernaum. They enter Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. And they're astounded at his teaching, which they tend to be. And then in the middle, there's a guy with an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now at this point, Jesus could have stopped and given the altar call right then and there. But what does he do? Do you remember? Do you, do you notice? He says, Be quiet. Like, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, if because you know, now you're like, Gee, we spend all our time trying to convince people he is the One of God. And, he, and then when, someone, when the demon says it, Jesus tells him to be quiet. That's so weird. But I think what we see here is he says, it is not yet time. Scholars call this Mark's messianic secret. That over time, we know from the beginning who Jesus is, but those around him come to figure it out, come to, come to learn it. Um, which is also frustrating um, when you watch crime procedurals if they tell you who did it at the beginning. It also just takes all the fun out of it. Um, I bet you've never heard the Gospels compared to a crime procedural show before. <laughs> I'm starting to watch SVU, uh, which, which I know you're like, oh, good, you're only 20 seasons late. Uh, but, uh, but what we see here is Jesus keeps being built up. SVU is uh, Law & Order. Law & Order. It's the, it's the spinoff of Law & Order that's now actually been running longer than Law & Order. Uh, it's on at 10 for a reason. <laughs> Although uh, these days, even the shows at 8 are kind of disturbing. Um, so when, so when, we, when we look at this, okay, Jesus. Uh, so when we look at this, we see once again in all these Gospels, uh, but particularly in Mark, we're building up to the story of the crucifixion. Okay, so I've spent half the time or more, really, talking just in general terms. So, so what do the Gospels teach us? <laughs> about Jesus. 
that's probably what you really came to learn. And so we'll spend about 10 minutes on that, and then we'll be done. Um, but, but what the Gospels teach us is that Jesus' origin is not from humankind. Jesus' origin is not from humankind. We see that twice. Uh, we see that particularly in Matthew, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke, we see that in the, 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 what we call the infancy narratives. Uh, the Luke is the famous one we'll read on Christmas Eve. Uh, we, we see that uh, it is very clear. Uh, Jesus is not just a human being. He is a human being. He's 100% human, just as he's 100, but he's also 100% God. We see that Jesus' beginnings, he is not conceived uh, having original sin. Uh, I'm not going to go as far as our Roman Catholic friends do on kind of de de delineating how that works, uh, but simply to say that Jesus is not, is not conceived in an ordinary way. Jesus is not an ordinary human being who God somehow calls to this purpose. That's not true. What the Gospels teach us, uh, Jesus isn't some ordinary person who just has this extraordinary connection with God, that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, but is fully human, but also fully God from the beginning. We also see that when Jesus is baptized, that Jesus goes down and it says at that moment, the Spirit comes and, and a voice comes from heaven, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So the Gospels teach us that Jesus does not come from human origins. Uh, and Jesus' uh, ministry takes place largely in two places. At that point, we see the beginning of the ministry taking place first in Galilee, then in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke makes particular use of, uh, the, of geography to make a difference. Uh, John is mostly in Jerusalem. Mark also makes a clear delineation roughly at the end of Mark chapter 8 between Galilee and Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee is the place that represents signs and miracles and teachings. Uh, Cana of Galilee, the first miracle done where the water is turned to wine. We have this amazing signs, and we really wonder, why does Jesus uh, give us signs? I believe he gives us signs so that we can believe. He gives us signs that we can know. I don't necessarily, I'm going to be really careful here because I'm going to say things I can't guarantee you are 100% true, but I think are well attested in Scripture. Jesus does not perform miracles because he's a humanitarian. That is a good thing. But Jesus, the point of Jesus is to uh, miracles is not because God thinks all, Jesus thought all people need to be healed because it's pretty clear that Jesus comes and he heals, he might see a crowd of people in need of healing, and he'll heal how many people? One. He will, the, the point of healing is to demonstrate the power of God. And that's what we clearly, I think that's what we clearly see in, uh, in, in the Gospels. Uh, miracles uh, definitely attract people, but they also confuse people. Uh, it's really interesting. And then uh, Jesus also pairs that up more in Matthew and Luke with teachings. Uh, the most famous being the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and then in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, and they have a lot of similarities, um, but also some uh, differences. Um, and and with, with there, what we see there is a lot of his teachings circle around this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Remember, what does Jesus say? He'll say, the kingdom of God is like, that's particularly common, Eight times in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God is like. And what we see there is we see an image of what God's rule is like. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, I always like to talk about it really simply. What's a kingdom? What, de what, what defines a kingdom? This is not a trick question. When you have a king. When you have a king. Very good, right? So the kingdom of God is what? Where God is king. Let's see. That's simple enough, right? I'm a really simple person. What can you say? I, where God is king. So the kingdom of God, when God's in charge, it's like this. So where does the kingdom of God exist? Wherever God is or wherever God is in charge. So the kingdom of God exists certainly in heaven. That's why it's also interchangeable with the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of God is also intended to exist in anything, in any person where, where God is the Lord of their life, is in charge. 
If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the kingdom of God is within you. And so we see there kind of an ethical framework. Every time you see the kingdom of God, you're seeing a picture, an image of what uh, life lived with God is like. Uh, that's why in Matthew, talks about Matthew in, in, the, in the genre and in the way of persecuted church. They say even in the midst of persecution, uh, your kingdom is not the one with the, lead, with the crazy guy who says he's God in Rome. Who's the real king? Is Jesus. In fact, that's how the early Christians got in trouble. The earliest public proclamation of loyalty and patriotism in the Roman Empire was to offer incense with the words, Caesar is Lord. Do you know what's the earliest profession of faith of the Christian church? Jesus is Lord. You could see why they didn't like him. <laughs> right? And so he talks about this kingdom of God that, that the world, I'm moving so much my watch thinks I'm working out. This is great. <laughs> so the, uh, I should do this all the time at hell. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the kingdom of God, right, is this place where, where he's saying, you know, if you come to me, uh, things will be, will be different. But there are some really unusual and strange things. I'm going to talk about one of Jesus' strangest teachings on Sunday, so... Buckle up, and it'll talk about heaven and angels and when you die. So uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's going to be interesting and weird, and I don't know what I'm going to say yet. So I'm still pray for me. So Jesus has all these teachings, and many of them are countercultural. They don't make sense. They don't necessarily fit within the genres of Greco-Roman or ancient Jewish kind of moral traditions. They try to fit them in, but they don't because they don't come from around us. They come from beyond us. They're, they're, they're a hint, they're a look into the way God wants the world to be. Um, and so when Jesus does this, so the next thing we find is Jesus teaches, Jesus heals, and then also Jesus is confronted. All four Gospels tell us that when Jesus claims to speak for God or claims to tell us what God is like, or even worse, when he has those moments where he says, I and the Father are one, or I am the way and the truth of the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Or when he does the ultimate act of danger in John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead... Most people will tell you, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, his die is cast. He can't be trusted. He can't be controlled. And so he's got to be killed. I think of it, and so we see there that Jesus talks about in John, particularly the phrase is, my hour has not yet come. And now at this point he says, my hour has come. Because you see, when God's, when God's holiness comes into contact with our sinfulness... Um, what's going to happen? Two things are going to happen. One of two things will happen. One, we'll get better or we'll kill him. You hear it? What, what happens? They decide to kill him. That seems easier. Uh, so, so Jesus comes in this major conflict um, that leads to them saying he's dangerous. He is, the problem with Jesus was two things. He was teaching things uh, that, were, that, were, um, that were problematic religiously and politically. Uh, this was religion and politics getting together. This was a bipartisan solution to get rid of Jesus. The Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't agree on much, but they agreed Jesus had to go, had to go now. He had a problem with religion. Now one thing, this is a good example of when good religion can turn bad. We remember, what was, what was the big problem that the, that the people of Israel had that led up to exile? Worshiping, Worshiping false, gods. false gods. And so what happened? After exile, they get really close together and they say, we absolutely must maintain strict worship in only God. Now this other guy is saying he's God. See? See the problem? So it was a good thing that it got started, this desire to, to be pr protective of, of God's holiness. But what happens is, is, is then it led them to, uh, to, to not see what God was actually doing. Then the second thing was political. Um, the history of 
Israel after, say, like the Maccabees, the, which is the origin of Hanukkah, which is the story of Daniel, uh, after they overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes in, in, in the mid-2nd century BC, um, is then later, they're, they're, they have independence for about 100 years under the Hasmoneans, and then, and then about 50 BC, they're captured and put under the control of the Romans. And the Romans, uh, in general, their policy was you can, you can pretty much believe what you want as long as you don't threaten our power, and then we'll crush you. And so uh, what happens is Jesus comes, and he's talking about building a kingdom. And the leaders are saying, well, we've got this under control. The Sadducees, for example, were the party of Roman accommodation. Uh, let's just, um, if we just stay quiet, we keep our heads down, uh, they'll let us continue to have our temple, continue to have our priesthood, continue to have our sacrifices, and just keep your heads down. And Jesus comes and says, oh, I've got its kingdom that is not, of the, that's, you know, not the Roman one. And they're like, he's going to bring the Romans in. What does Caiaphas says? It's better for one man to die than for the nation to be destroyed. He is both a religious and a political threat. And so all this, we keep pointing. The Gospels are all pointing, and they point to that moment where Jesus is betrayed and brought before Pilate. Uh, Pilate, uh, it, Pilate thinks it's a religious problem, but the religious leaders remind him it's actually a political problem. This guy says he's in charge. Pilate, who's in charge? Not a trick question. Caesar, yes, this guy says he's like Caesar. Well, he's got to go. And so Jesus then is condemned, and he's crucified. That's the, the climax of all four, that he is crucified. He, carry, he is beaten within an inch of his life. He is forced to carry a cross that he doesn't have the strength to bear. And he is hanged on a cross. Crucifixion. Uh, was, in the words of the ancient Romans, a punishment so detestable it was not fit to be spoken of in polite company. Crucifixion, the goal of crucifixion was not to kill you. Uh, that certainly was part of it. <laughs> but the goal was to humiliate you. Because unlike all the pictures where Jesus is wearing clothes, Jesus was displayed naked for the world to see. I gave you a map of where all this happened. You can refer to it later. He is displayed there. You couldn't be put to death. Couldn't, you could be put to death, certainly, but you could not be crucified if you were a citizen of Rome. You could not be crucified if you had money. Only the poor, the slaves, the traitors were put to death by crucifixion. And so Jesus is put to death as a common criminal. And in fact, according to that, incurring a curse. Deuteronomy says any who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And so both politically and religiously, Jesus is cursed. And he is hanged there uh, to suffer, uh, and, and all of his disciples abandon him except the one. And then his mother, Mary Magdalene. And there, uh, Jesus, beaten and bloodied, dies. And in many ways, this could be the end of the story. Another noble, romantic leader threatening the power of empire, offering a different way of life that is free, uh, that is uh, decent, uh, killed by the power of oppressive empire uh, and religion. And that's it. But that's not it. Right? It's not it. Jesus is buried. Jesus dies. Now, I want to also say when Jesus dies, we see the blood uh, that is the life. The, the life is in the blood that Leviticus teaches us, that he is a sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it had both a political function but also a religious one, that Jesus gives up his life freely. Philippians tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God or was equal to God, he did not count that equality as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, being obedient even to death on the cross. 
And we see that Jesus' death, which is sacrificial, which is atoning, um, but it is also a sign of Jesus' loyalty uh, and his sense of, uh, of fulfilling, fulfilling the mission that the Father had given him. But there, uh, three days later, he is raised from the dead. Something it doesn't explain. Uh, Jesus raised others from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But what happened to Lazarus later? He died. He died. Is Lazarus still around? No. He's dead. But Jesus comes back to life and never dies again. That moment, those three days of crucifixion and resur burial, resurrection, those three days are the ones on which all of human history turns. Because the very foundations of what we know about life and death are shattered at the cross and at the empty tomb. You see, God doesn't redeem the world as it turns out by giving us ways to live better. God redeems the world by breaking the elemental spirits of the world, as Paul calls them. By breaking all the ordinary rules that govern the world and by instituting a new kingdom, a new world that will be represented on earth by a new community. Amen. That's called the church. And it ends with Jesus and pushing them to that new mission, that this new age has come, this resurrection age has come. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and in Matthew, that famous great commission, <laughs> go therefore, uh, make disciples. That main verb is make disciples. Go is probably subsidiary. Make disciples. As you go, make disciples. Uh, the, the way I've taught you, teach them. The way you've been baptized, baptize them. Now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, in, in, uh, in Luke, or in John rather, uh, Jesus calls Peter, the one who denied him three times, restores him and says, feed my sheep. Feed both tend and also equip. Build up my sheep. And, and then, uh, and then in, uh, in Luke, uh, the, the resurrection uh, comes. He comes and he, he speaks to them in person. And then he says to them, uh, he uh, explains to them all that has happened and gives them the ability and the energy then to go forward uh, to fulfill the gospel mandate because this good news, as it turns out, and we'll talk about that more next week and the week after, is not just for the closed-in community, but that good news is for the whole world because when the power of evil and sin was broken on the cross, it wasn't just broken for some people. It was broken for everyone, for the whole world, for those who will believe. So there's a lot in this. There's stuff that we didn't cover but it looks forward. It both looks back to the story of Israel and now looks forward to the story of the church, the story that now include, that, will, that will include you and me, and the story that involves Jesus' desire to reconcile the whole world to himself, and to esteem and restore. That's the plan. <laughs> and we'll get into the plan more next week.